We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back to this great sermon on the Mount by Jesus that we've been looking at for a number of weeks. One of the things that made a big impression on me as a young man was reading a book by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle. Some of you know that, many of you know that. It's one of the muckraker novels that came out at the beginning of the 20th century that was kind of exposing the social ills of the Industrial Revolution and And the jungle was about a Lithuanian immigrant who was working in the packing town, the meat packing industries in the Chicago stockyards. And it told the gruesome tale of uh, of the things that took place in these factories where from time to time uh, poisoned dead rats would fall into the machinery and the meat grinders and just be churned up with all of the other meat that was eventually packaged and sold to the public, and in one shocking event, even a human fell into the uh, machine works and was packaged along with all of the other meats, uh, hopefully with no one being the wiser. Well, as the novel came out, it was a shock to the nation. Uh, people began to withdraw from buying meats. There was plummeting demand uh, across the nation in grocers and an outcry among the people, so that in 1906, uh, barely one year uh, after the publication of, of Sinclair's book, the Congress passed the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which called for tight standards reviews at the nation's food processing industries. Well, today we are reading from Jesus' sermon, which is in itself a kind of an expose. It's kind of telling, if you will, or exposing, I should say. It's exposing a little bit of the sordid um, false promises, the empty, rotting meat and uh, empty, rotting promises that are being sold to the world under the banner of happiness and joy and, and blessing. It's kind of taking... A light and shining it on what has been uh, over and over and over again throughout all the centuries, the malnourished and poisoned and and uh, deadly kind of products that are peddled over and over again. And yet, sadly, the world hasn't responded with the same sort of horror to this expose. They're not infuriated by the diseased and rotten things that they feed on in terms of their uh, their inner man, their mental and psychological and emotional health. In fact, the world, even after hearing these things that Christ says, just seems to roll on day after day, week after week, year after year, in unbounded optimism that the kind of joy, the kind of happiness, the kind of blessing that they're pursuing is just around the corner. Well, Jesus makes it clear that's not the case because he's telling us in this sermon and particularly in the first section we know as the Beatitudes, he's telling us what a life of blessedness looks like. And if there's one thing that's clear, it looks very different from what the world tells you is a life of blessedness. In fact, everything he says here runs uh, counter to what you would hear from the world around you and your friends. Everything he 
says here sort of demands a decision from you whether or not you will continue to seek blessing, to seek happiness, to seek fulfillment through the empty promises of the world, or whether you will open your eyes to the true pathway of blessedness and happiness that Jesus lays out here. Now, of course, this is not just a sermon about blessedness and happiness. It's really a sermon that was aimed at his disciples to talk to them about the true nature of a Christian. You remember, it was all prompted because Jesus had a healing ministry that was attracting uh, 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 thousands of people from all over the Middle East. And we're told that at the end of chapter 4, and then right at the beginning of chapter 5, he sees the crowds, he looks at the crowds, he realizes that people are flocking to him, and he knows the danger in those crowds, and so he calls his disciples to himself, Matthew says, calls them away from the crowds, off to a mountaintop, and gives them this message, a message that was designed to help them understand the true nature of saving faith, the true nature of a Christian. And Jesus frames it in the terms of blessedness. He frames it in terms of happiness. Because true happiness and true blessedness is always contingent on a relationship with the Lord. And so this is a pathway, if you will, that is laid out for people as they seek the Lord and a pathway as well that leads them down a journey to real fulfillment and happiness. Beatitudes are arranged, as a matter of fact, in a kind of a sequence. They, they, they spell out what would be this, the normal uh, pathway, the normal steps that you would take on a pathway to God. It begins, as we've seen, with the first beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed is, uh, is the person, the, the man or woman, who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy, their spiritual helplessness, the desperate state that they're in because of their sin and their, and their uh, rebellion against God. And then secondly, blessed are those who mourn that situation. Blessed are those who are affected deeply by their plight. They're affected so much so that they begin to weep or mourn over what they've done. They enter into what the Bible calls godly sorrow, which Paul outlines in 2 Corinthians 7. It's a sorrow that leads to repentance without regret. It leads to repentance without regret, meaning that it leads to a change of behavior. It leads to a forsaking of your former life of sin, and you don't regret it. You're not doing it to please someone else. You're not being coerced into it because you happen to be discovered or found out by someone. This is a repentance that doesn't regret because it's not secretly longing for the things that it's leaving behind. This is not, in other words, a religious facade. It's a genuine repentance. It's a true repentance. And it comes from a heart of mourning and grief over your behavior, about the ways that you've rebelled against God and the ways you've spurned His law and the grief and the shame that that brought into your life because of it. So it's a repentance without regret, a leaving sin that doesn't leave you bitter and doesn't leave you resentful about having to make these changes. You're not secretly cherishing uh, your sin or resenting people who are forcing you into a new lifestyle. That's true godly sorrow, true godly repentance, true mourning. 
Which brings you really to the third beatitude, which we looked at last week, which is the blessedness of meekness, which is basically a way of saying that you have, have come to the end of yourself. You've emptied yourself of yourself. Having realized the destitute nature of yourself, having realized the bankruptcy, having realized the, the, uh, the, the, the absolute repulsive nature of your sin, mourned over your situation, meekness then empties itself of itself. That's what meekness is. You no longer are the center. Your relationships, your time, your life is not about you. People around you are not having to bow to you. They're not having, as we said, to walk on eggshells over fear of offending you because you're not the center anymore. There is no more self-justification. There's no more self-ambition, no more self-promotion. Self is gone because you have reached the verdict about yourself that God has declared about you. You've recognized your spiritual bankruptcy. You've emptied yourself of yourself. Well, that leaves you then in a position ready to be filled. If you've emptied yourself of yourself, if you realize the nature of your foolish behavior, the nature of your empty, vain life of pursuing sin... If you've recognized all of that and you reach that point and you are, are sort of recoiling in meekness over it as you mourn over your sin, you're at the place that Jesus says you're ready to be filled, which is what he talks about in the fourth beatitude, which is our focus this morning, the blessedness, he says, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We're going to take some time this morning to look at this the same way we have in the past by just uh, spending a little bit of time expounding the meaning of this, understanding, explaining it, and then secondly, looking at an example of what this would look like. To begin with, we can think about hungering for righteousness as an expounded truth here. Jesus mentions it. He's obviously not talking about physical hunger. He's not saying that everyone is physically hunger, hungry will be satisfied. We know that's not true. People still starve. But what he's doing is he's tapping into that natural sense that all of us feel. Everyone has touched uh, or, or tasted or felt the bite of hunger, the, um, the parched uh, uh, feeling of thirst at some point. Maybe not to the same degree, Modern technology, uh, modern advances in agriculture and uh, food storage and transportation and all those things have meant that you and I don't face uh, famine and hardship the same way that people do uh, in developing countries today and certainly throughout all of history. Jesus' listeners would have probably been more familiar with hunger and thirst than you and I know. But what Jesus is talking about is at least to some extent familiar to everyone. We have all felt what hunger does to you, how it has the capacity to focus your attention, to narrow it down to its main object, which is the satisfaction of your hunger or your thirst, to, 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 uh, to address, you might say, the main need which is there. In fact, it can become all-consuming the deeper 
And longer you go into hunger and thirst, the more and more it gathers your attention. A starved person has this all-consuming passion for that one thing, whether it's food or drink. In other words, he's not talking about just some passing craving or wistful hope, something that may or may not fade with time. He's talking about something for which there is no other answer other than filling your belly with what is necessary. Every man and woman knows this in a natural world. As a matter of fact, you know it even in the immaterial world. You know it, we might say, in the emotional world. You know it in the, if you want to say psychological, and you know it in the spiritual. Because every person who's born in this world is born with an appetite, a hunger for something beyond what they currently have and know. God has built you with that. He's built you with a longing and a desire to fulfill a purpose that you know that you're here for, but you don't know what it is. Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about this to some extent when he says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, God has put eternity in your heart. He's put something within your consciousness that tells you that there's more. He's put, uh, the word could be translated infinity. He, he has helped you to understand that the finite Uh, existence that you have in the immediate time and place where you find yourself cannot be all that there is. And so you, you yearn and you churn and you strive for something else. Walt Kaiser commenting on that says there's a deep seated desire, a compulsive drive to discover the meaning of the world and to understand its purposes. Part of that deep seated drive is to find out not just the purposes of the world, but the purposes that you were created for. You know that there's more. You know that happiness must be out there, that satisfaction must be out there. You sense that you don't have it. As St. Augustine said so long ago in his confessions, you, O God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That's the reality of every man and woman, boy and girl, born into this world. They have a hunger. They have a thirst. They have a longing. They have a yearning, a sense of emptiness and a sense of need. And they spend their life, even as Solomon did, pursuing so many things that end up being emptiness and vanity of vanities. Never realizing that God created within you a need for Him. That will never be satisfied with anything else. And he, he rebukes or he challenges people over and over again with this reality. For example, in Isaiah 55, he asked Israel, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? He was talking to a nation that was at that point in, in exile in Babylon and after so many years had lost Faith in God and in His Word and in His promises were no longer seeking Him, were no longer trusting Him. They had settled into a materialistic existence where their whole life was just about what they could acquire, how they could advance, what kind of luxuries they could find. 
And after years and years of doing that, he's basically asking them, how's that working for you? How's it working out? Is it really satisfying? You're buying things that don't fill your tummy. You're spending money on what doesn't satisfy. And you know it. You know it in your heart. All the things you accumulate and the hunger is still there. All the outward accolades or success that you might find, all the dreams that you want to claim that when you lay hold of them, it's still there. Later on, Jeremiah will weep over these people because he says they're digging for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. These these sort of caves or wells that they would dig out of the limestone in the ground that they would hopefully pour water in that they could draw on later to, to quench their thirst. But he says, you've dug out these holes in your heart and in your life and you're trying to fill them over and over again and they never fill up. They never fill up. Your heart, your life is leaking out all over the place and all of your efforts, it's never filled. And this is a picture of men and women who are hungering and they're thirsting for happiness. They're thirsting for blessedness. Their heart remains empty time and time again. They want to deal with the pain. They want to deal with the sadness. They want to deal with the distress. And they think they'll cover it up by shopping or eating or some substance abuse. They think they will cover it up with uh, entertaining themselves, amusing themselves to get rid of their pain. They think they'll cover it up with some relationship, one after the other. This boy, this girl, this man, this woman. And never really stopping to really assess what is the cause What's the cause of this sadness? What's the cause of this emptiness? Where does it come from? Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about it like a patient going to a doctor who has severe pain. And the doctor just offering him pain medication. Never diagnosing the issue. Never getting to the root cause. Reminding us, a doctor's primary duty is not to relieve pain. A doctor's primary Duty is to treat disease, illness, frailty. In fact, a doctor who just treats the pain without discovering the cause may be doing you more harm than good. Just covering up what is your body's natural defenses to tell you something is wrong. The grief and the sorrow and the sadness and the emptiness is your conscience natural defense telling you something's wrong. Something in your life is wrong. Something in your heart and your mind is wrong. And you go on hungering and thirsting for something to fill the void. Well, people are like that with happiness. They're like that with blessedness. They're like that with joy. Never stopping to assess that the real root cause of all their emptiness, of all their grief, is their rebellion against God. But what Jesus is telling us about here in Matthew 5 
is the blessed state of the person who comes to see this for what it is. They come to see that the real emptiness they have is an emptiness of righteousness, an emptiness of relationship with God. And so they begin to hunger and thirst. And they got here, as we said, because they recognized their poverty of spirit. They recognized uh, the, the, the bankruptcy of their life. They mourned and they grieved over it. They, they renounced themselves. They emptied themselves of themselves in meekness. And so here they are now ready to be filled. Ready to be filled. No longer full of themselves. And ready to have God fill them. And you are ready to be blessed. It's a necessary condition, though. You have to reach the end of yourself. You have to get the end of all the things that you were craving after. You have to recognize the dissatisfaction that they've been to you over and over and over again. There has to be a dissatisfaction with everything else that you have tried to fill your life with. All of the sin, all of the self-glory, all of the selfish ambition, all of the possessions... And certainly the self-righteousness, the false righteousness, the mask that you've put on in front of other people time and time again when you came to church or with you, when you're with your family, that attempt to cover up your sin that you, that you uh, followed again and again and it never satisfied you. It always left you empty. It might have pacified your peers, it might have pacified your family, it might have pacified the people who are peeking into your life, but it always left you empty. So even that self-righteousness and even that false righteousness, all of that pretense has got to be renounced. And you empty yourself of all that stuff and you're ready. You're ready to find true blessedness. Because God begins to fill you with righteousness. This is true for every believer. This has always been true for every believer. They have a hunger and thirst for genuine righteousness. It's not a facade. You come to a place like this, you go to a church, and you see all these people who are eager to pray, and they're eager to read their Bible, and they're eager to worship God, and they're eager to be around Christian people, they're eager to share their faith. And you might be thinking, ah, it's just a show. I just know it's all a show. No, it's not a show. This is what genuine Christians are. They, from the inside, have a sincere hunger and thirst to be like God. Job 23, verse 12. I've not departed from the commandment of His lips. I've treasured the words of His mouth more than my portion of food. I'd rather rather have His word than my food. Or David in Psalm 19, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 63, David says again, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The sons of Korah, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? These are the inevitable words, the longings of every true believer. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. 
Now, the people who are just flocking around him for some temporal benefit and healing don't necessarily demonstrate what a true believer is because a true believer has an inner deep yearning to see their life transformed. They want to be made in the image of God. They're weary of the effects of sin. They, they see the damaging, destructive, disappointing impact of sin. And so their mind is drawn to a life of godliness. They want to replace sin with holiness. Replace disobedience with obedience. Because they've come to know and believe that that is the only way to satisfaction. And just like food is necessary to nourish and keep them alive, they've reached the point to recognize that righteousness is the only thing that can sustain their inner man. It's the only thing that can sustain their spirit. Jesus says you begin to hunger and you begin to thirst for this. And the blessedness is you'll be filled. You will be filled. When you reach this place, you've emptied yourself of yourself. You will be filled. God will do it. He told Isaiah, or excuse me, he told the people in Isaiah's day, Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine, milk without price and without money. He will supply. He will satisfy course you'll do that immediately the moment you confess your state the you mourn over your sin you die to yourself the moment you do that he floods you with forgiveness and he clothes you with his righteousness you are in the sense of the scripture you're justified you're made right with god And you're immediately cleansed in your conscience. All the pain of your guilt and the stain of your sin is wiped away. And God soothes your heart and your conscience. And so you immediately are are satisfied in that sense. You're justified. And Paul says in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And through him, he says in verse 2, you obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So you have now this peace that floods in your heart, but you also have joy because of the hope of the glory of God. He's not talking about glorifying God with your lips and with your life. He's talking about the glory of God, meaning the revelation of Jesus Christ, when He comes again and you and I are transformed, as John says in 1 John chapter 3, when we see Him, we'll be like Him. We're transformed into His same image. And we have that hope with all of our disappointments and all of our weaknesses and all of our stumbling and all the stuff that we have to continue to battle through in this fallen flesh. We never are to give up or lose hope of the fact that one day we will be righteous. And it gives you joy. And so there's a satisfaction that comes immediately from your justification and from your hope. But it isn't just that. It's not just that. There's an ongoing satisfaction. 
There's immediate satisfaction and an ongoing satisfaction because as you're hungering and thirsting, God begins the supernatural work of fulfilling His righteousness in you. He works in you to will and do of His good pleasure, Paul says in Philippians. He, be, he completes the good work that He begins within you. He plants His Spirit within you and you are being sanctified you're beginning to see the fruits of the Spirit manifested in your life so that day by day uh, and, and uh, year by year, you're seeing development in your spiritual life. It's not happening at the pace any of us want, but it's happening. And you're satisfied with His Word and you're satisfied by His Spirit and you're satisfied by His grace. And you begin to realize that the righteousness that seems so far away from you at the beginning that was so foreign to you. And all the things that you saw in the lives of other Christians that just seemed like such a mystery to you are now becoming a part of your life. Now you find yourself reading. Now you find yourself praying. Now you find yourself worshiping and teaching and evangelizing. All those things. And it's all coming from within. You're being filled And it encourages and it fulfills your hearts in ways that no sinful pursuit could even come close to. And of course, the fruits of that are manifesting in your life. The fruit of following God's law and God's way. The joy and the benefit of doing life the way that He's commanded you to do it. All that stuff is bringing blessing upon blessing in your life. That's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Well, if that's the explanation, let's take just a brief moment then to look at an example, to see this exemplified. And just like we've said in weeks past, I mean, we could go to a number of places. We could go to the Old Testament. We could look at the Psalms and the prophets, and we could find all kinds of examples of this. But Particularly this morning, I want to take us to a New Testament example over in John chapter 4. You can turn with me there in your Bibles, John 4, to the familiar story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And just to kind of briefly remind you of the context of what's going on here, John is recording the life of Jesus, and he's telling how Jesus was traveling north. He had been down in Judea, and now he was traveling north to Galilee, And it says in John 4, 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Well, there were alternative routes he could have done like most Jews in that day. He could have bypassed Samaria going down across the Jordan River at Jericho and coming up the eastern side. But he didn't want to do that because he was actually fleeing. John the Baptist had just been arrested and we're told at the beginning of the chapter that now the Pharisees had turned their sights on Jesus and they were uh, on the hunt for him. And so probably he was making a hurried trip to the north, which necessitated that he take the most direct pathway, which was directly north up through Samaria. And it says in verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. 
Sixth hour in Jewish accounting would have meant the sixth hour of sunshine. The day started at sunrise, and so this was uh, six hours into it, so basically noon, the hottest part of the day. The sun was beating down on Jesus. It was beating down on everyone in all the land, and so he was weary. Next verse says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, this would have been unusual. Women didn't normally come to draw water in the middle of the day. They did it when any sensible person would do it. They would do it early in the morning or late in the evening when the sun had gone down, and they almost always did it in groups. Always. You see it when you look in Scripture. You see groups of maidens going out together to do this strenuous work. They would have had to lower a bucket 100 feet down into a well, draw it back up, load up their containers, whatever they are, carry them back on their heads or their shoulders the long distance back into the village. It was strenuous. It was hot. It was unpleasant work. And so they would have waited for a more pleasant hour to do it. But not this woman. For some reason, she comes in the middle of the day, probably because... She was intentionally avoiding all these other women. She'd had bad experiences. She didn't want to be around them. She knew they wouldn't treat her nicely. They looked down on her with scorn. You say, why did they look down on her score? Because she's an adulteress. She was living with a man that she wasn't married to. And it was disapproved, certainly, in those days. Not only that, but she had been married five times even before this man. And in a village like Sikar, which was probably at most just a couple of thousand people, someone who lived like that had a reputation they couldn't escape anywhere in town. And so she's coming out and she's hoping that she can quietly slip out to the well, get her water, not have to speak to anyone, no, no one having to deal with her life, no one having to look down on her. She's hoping that she can hide away in the shame of her behavior and her activity and never have to deal with it. Well, she shows up and this man is sitting there and as she goes to the well, he says in verse 7, give me a drink. The woman's surprised. And so in the next verse, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, sw- a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she, she just assumes that Jesus has the same kind of racial and religious prejudice that all the other Jews have who she's encountered in her life. But Jesus cuts through all that in verse 10. And he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. If you only understood, he said, if you had any idea about the thirst quenching opportunity that's in front of you, if you had any notion about this free gift that I have to offer, you would be begging me for living water. Jesus is telling her, God wants to quench. Your thirst. He wants to satisfy your hunger. Like he tells the crowds in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will no longer hunger. Whoever believes in me will no longer thirst. 
Or John 7, again, he tells the crowds in Jerusalem, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's telling this lady, God wants to satisfy that thirst within you and that hunger within you. Well, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. In verse 11, she, she's still thinking in the way that she's always thought. She's thinking in terms of satisfying her material desires, her material body, her material life. So she says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it as did his sons and his livestock? You know, you're going to dig a well that's going to last longer than this well? Is that what you're telling me? Well, Jesus turns the conversation in a more explicitly spiritual direction. In verse 13, he said to everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is the water from this well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is going to be a constant stream. This is going to be an everlasting stream. This is going to be a satisfying, deeply fulfilling and satisfying well that comes up within you with its living water that satisfies you not only now but forever. Well, she's interested but still doesn't understand it. She still doesn't see that what Jesus is getting at is not her false empty, vain ideas of material fulfillment. What he's getting at is her spiritual longings. And so she asked once again in verse 15, the woman said to her or says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, Jesus understands she still doesn't see what what he's talking about. He doesn't see or she doesn't see why her heart is so dry. She doesn't understand why her life is so hungry. She doesn't understand the dissatisfaction that she deals with every day. She doesn't understand any of that. So Jesus just sort of cuts through all of this and he goes right to that issue, right to that issue of her dissatisfaction. He said to her, woman, go call your husband and come here. She answered him and said, I have no husband. She's like most sinners. I mean, she doesn't want to talk about the truth of her sin. She'd rather keep it covered up. She'd rather keep it behind closed doors. She'd rather keep it hidden. So she tries to hide it. Jesus says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. So what you said is true. Well, now she's exposed. Now he's brought all of her sin to the light. He's got her to the place where she can't deny. He's brought her to the place of conviction. She's got to admit her sin. She's been exposed on the evidence of her restless life. She has been seeking satisfaction, trying to quench her inner being through these relationships with men. And it's been one man after another, after another, after another. So she attempts to put on a spiritual front in verse 19, sort of reverting to what 
she knows, which is the religion of her forefathers, the questions and debates that she probably heard growing up as a little child. So she says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she wants to kind of just cover up, change the subject. She's just been unmasked as an adulterous woman and the weight of her sin is bearing down on her something fierce. And so all she knows to do is to put on a religious show, just like she's always been taught to do. Just change the subject, start talking about something that sounds spiritual. Well, Jesus doesn't bite on it. In fact, he takes her words in verse 21 and he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So he's basically telling her, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you worship. You don't know how to worship. You don't know what genuine worship is. He does not let her take this conversation in some superficial direction. He continues to press the issue of the miserable state of her spiritual standing. She's beginning to realize that this is not just some superficial religious conversation like she might get into somewhere in the village or in her temple. And so she begins to acknowledge her need in verse 25. The woman said, well, I know the Messiah is coming and he was called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us everything. Jesus tells her in verse 26. He says, I who speak to you am he. Except in the Greek, the word he is not there. It's just literally, I who am speaking to you am. I am. Just like God in the Old Testament is my name, I am. He reveals himself to her. And they go on talking. We don't know how long. We know they talked because later on she goes and tells people that Jesus told her everything she ever did. So she had to have more conversation with him. Had to be greater than what we read. But when it ends, in verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this man be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Down in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, presumably after the two days, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Let me ask you a simple question. How does a woman who goes out in the middle of the day the heat of the day, doing her best to avoid contact with as many people as she can, not wanting to engage anyone in discussions about her sin 
or righteousness or the law or God or any of that. How does a woman like that suddenly become a person who wants nothing more but to sit and listen to Jesus for two days? And not only that, but every person she knows, she wants to go find them and get them to come and listen to this same man. How does that happen? Well, it happens just like Jesus tells us it happens. It happens because she recognized her impoverished spiritual state. She came in this encounter to Jesus. She came to see and realize that she has nothing. She is exposed. And she grieved over it as Jesus helped her to see the life of her sin, how she was pursuing all of these things, particularly these men, these relationships, looking for something to satisfy, something to fulfill, not taking stock at any point, stopping and realizing the cause of your emptiness is not the lack of another man. The cause of your emptiness is not the lack of some experience or some joy or some possession or some achievement. The lack of your your fulfillment, the reason that you're empty is because you are empty of God. And so coming to see this about herself, she repented. She emptied herself of herself. It was no longer about her and about her, her uh, achieving or whatever, uh, fulfilling or pursuing these sinful desires. Now it was suddenly repulsive to her. Those sins that she had so vainly pursued all of her life, she no longer wanted any part of. And when she was empty of all that stuff, now in this empty vessel, God was able to flood her with righteousness. And now all she wanted to do was to hear God's word, to hear from Christ. All she wanted to do was spend her time pursuing the Lord. This is what happens with every true believer. And this is what, what, this is what Jesus wanted his disciples to know. He wanted them to be able to tell the difference between someone who's just putting on a religious facade, someone who's just showing up because he's healing, someone who's just showing up because there's a crowd. He wanted them to be able to tell what a true believer is. And a true believer, he's saying, has this yearning desire that is churning within them for righteousness. It's for righteousness. Now, you might be sitting there this morning and saying, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. I, 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 I felt that. I had that. I used to. There was a period of my life where I would drop everything. Every time the church doors were open, I wanted to be there. When there was a Bible study, I wanted to be there. I used to listen to sermons when I could. I read my Bible every day. I just wanted nothing else but to be around Christians. I wanted to talk about God. I used to be there. But the appetite's not the same. Well, it is true that we can stunt our appetite, even though we have it, there's all kinds of ways that we can do damage to it. Scripture speaks about this. Uh, we, can, we can stunt our appetite, obviously, by feeding on all the filth of the world. 
If we eat the poisoned, rotten meats and vegetables or whatever of the world, we're going to mess ourselves up in all kinds of ways. Remember Peter, excuse me, uh, uh, Paul tells Timothy in first, uh, excuse me, second Timothy chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter. He wants Timothy to teach the scripture to other people. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of other uh, and many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the sufferings of a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So that's, what, that's, your, that's your marching orders. That's what you're supposed to do. But then he reminds him of this. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you understanding of everything. So he's just reminding them, if you're going to fulfill this mission, if you're going to continue to feed on the Word of God and be able to feed it to other people, then you've got to first of all recognize you can't get entangled with all the things that entangle the world. Like Jesus says in His parable, there's, there are cares and concerns of the world that grow up around the planted seed of God's Word and choke it out. So that may be one of the reasons why the appetite isn't the same like it used to be. First Peter chapter 2 gives us another possible reason. It could be just sin. You've cherished sin. You've got sin that you haven't confessed. You haven't brought before the Lord. You haven't lifted up to Him and dealt with before Him. And it dampens your appetite. Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, put away all malice deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word that you might grow into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So here you are, you've tasted it, you've known it, and now the appetite is gone and He's telling them, well, that's because you've been harboring in your heart malice. You've been bitter. You've been angry. You've been deceitful. You've been, in some cases, hypocritical. You're just putting on a show for your spouse or for your friends or for your uh, neighbors or whatever it might be. You have envy in your heart. You're sitting around envying other people. You're like the, the man in Psalm 73 who, whose feet had almost slipped. He said, why is that? Because he was envious of the wicked. He saw how their eyes were bulging with fatness and how they were draped in chains of luxurious gold and he was looking at them and he says, my feet have almost slipped. You've allowed all this stuff to grow up in your heart and you're no longer longing for the pure spiritual milk of God's word. You're no longer longing for righteousness. Could simply be just a famine for the Word of God. As Amos says in Amos 8.11, there's a famine for the hearing of the Word of God that you just haven't taken advantage of what's out there. Maybe 
In some cases, you didn't have opportunity to hear the Word of God preached on a regular basis. You weren't taught the Word of God. But then when you do have it, are you taking advantage of it? Is there a self-imposed famine? Are you taking advantage when the Word of God is preached? Are you, are you preparing your heart to listen to it? Are you thinking on it, meditating on it? Are you reading it, studying it? That too will spur your appetite. This is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian does. This is how you know a Christian. They're not yearning and churning to fill their heart with the empty vanity of the world. They're yearning and churning to be like Christ. And through all the twists and turns and ups and downs and hills and valleys of life, they're not content until God finally does that work in them. They're striving, they're yearning, they're reaching. They're like Paul pressing on, pressing on in Philippians chapter 3 until he be made, until he be conformed to the image of Christ, sharing in his sufferings. This is a life of a true Christian. Some of you here don't have that. You know you don't have that. All you have, all you have is the mask that you put on each Sunday. All you have is the facade. And I don't need to tell you. You know that it doesn't fulfill. You know that it leaves you empty. You ask yourself, why do all these people do it? Because you don't know why you do it. Jesus is warning you. If you don't have this hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're not blessed. You haven't found the path of blessing because you haven't found God. You haven't found salvation. But it is there. Come, he says, buy without money, food and drink, all that you want. Come, buy He will dispense it and you will find rest for your souls. Father, we're so grateful for these reminders and so needful. We know that our hunger and thirst has been satisfied by you. We who've tasted of your kindness and your righteousness, Lord, we're ready to declare nothing satisfies like you and your righteousness. Forgive us, O Lord, where we've allowed our appetite to be stunted. We do not want that. Till our dying day, we want to hunger and thirst for you. Give us renewed passion to search out your truth, to understand your ways, to be conformed through all your work, through your trials and your sanctification in our life, we want to be conformed to Christ. So I pray that you would do that work in us. Satisfy us again with righteousness. Those who are here who don't know you, Lord, we pray that they would reach an end of themselves, that they would empty themselves of all the vanity and pride that they have so that you can fill them with what really satisfies. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.